people stand on the Bible's account. We'll say, well, that was the sequence. But if we think man's opinions and scientific interpretations are authoritative, then we will change the normal sense of the Bible's text to fit man's theories. So that was last week. We did that overview. We looked at some of those basic truths. This week, we're looking more specifically at creation days one to four. We're going to spend a good amount of time today examining the word day itself. Then we'll respond to a few objections to our, the normal understanding of day in Genesis 1. And then we'll finish by looking specifically at what happened on those first four days of creation. By the way, we are spending eight lessons on creation, but there's still a lot of great information that we're just not going to be able to talk about in the Sunday school class. So I don't want you to forget that you have other resources available to you. If you have questions or objections or you just want to learn more, go to answersingenesis.org. That website has proved valuable to me as part of preparing for this class. I know it will prove valuable to you as an extension of this class. Their whole ministry is dedicated to hearing, researching, and answering all types of questions and arguments about creation. And you know that their stance is a presuppositional one. They're going to stand in the authority of Scripture first and not on outside evidence. Their website is an extremely valuable resource, as is our book nook, which has a number of works on creation. You'll find them in the apologetic section, right, when you go into the book nook. And one book that I really would like to recommend to you, I've mentioned it before, but I'll say it again, is this book, Coming to Grips with Genesis, Biblical Authority and the Age of the Earth. It has a little foreword and endorsement by John MacArthur, but it's actually a collection of essays from seminary professors and scholars, and talking about topics, among others, how did the church fathers view creation? How did the reformers view creation? What's the genre of Genesis 1? Are the Genesis genealogies trustworthy? What New Testament verses are relevant for understanding creation? Was the flood really global? They also offer critiques of various old earth interpretations of Genesis 1 to 11. I've really benefited from reading that book, and I've integrated some of its information into our class, but again, I just can't talk about everything there. So I encourage you, check out that book and those other books that are over there when, um, when you have opportunity. Okay, let's go before the Lord now in prayer, and we'll continue with our Sunday school. Holy Creator, thank you for being our God. Help me to be able to explain clearly and well the truth of Genesis so we can be encouraged by it, so that we can be confident in it, and so that we can understand what you meant for us to understand. Open our eyes to your word now. Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to start by talking about the word day in Genesis 1. And there was even a question about this last week. So it's at the heart of the question about how do we interpret the creation narrative. What exactly does day mean? And how do we know that? Well, in any language, words can have multiple meanings. For example, if you look up the word run, in our English dictionary, you will find about 40 meanings in its verb form, not to mention the other meanings for noun and adjective. However, 
If a woman said to you, I got a run in my stocking while I was running to the store, and when I ran my eyes across the shelves to find my favorite brand of toothpaste, it wasn't there. Someone said that to you. Even though run is, or even though run appears multiple times, you know what each instance of the word run means. How do you know that? Yeah, context, right? You look at the words and phrases that appear around it. I got a run in my stocking. Well, that in my stocking tells you exactly how you should understand the word run. It doesn't take much more than that. And then, of course, it's the same for those other ones. This is a fundamental concept of language. When a word has multiple meanings, the word's meaning is dependent on its context, especially its immediate context. What words and phrases appear with the word? So this is also true for the word day, both in English and in Hebrew. Day has multiple meanings. But the meaning of day intended by the author becomes abundantly clear when we look at the context. Allow me to demonstrate further. I'm going to read to you a few passages of scripture, and I want you to pay attention. Your job will be to tell me what the word day or days means in the sentence, and then how you know that. So the first one comes from Genesis 35. Genesis 35, 28 says, now the days of Isaac were 180 years. What does days mean? Eric. Yeah, it's lifespan, right? It's a period of time with specific length. It's more than a normal 24-hour day. And how did you know that, Eric? Exactly. We have an equivalent. Uh, those days are defined for us. We have an equivalent at the second part of, this, um, of the sentence. We know that these days belong to Isaac, and they're defined for us as being 180 years. And that, that makes perfect sense. We don't... We don't question our understanding of that. The context makes it clear. Just that one immediate, or the immediate context of the sentence. Now here's another one. Leviticus 9.1. Now it came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. What does day mean here? Craig. What do you say ordinary? What do you mean? Exactly. So we're talking about a 24-hour day. And how did you know that, Craig? Very good. So we're, we're, we're missing clues that would say it's something other than 24 hours, but certainly that number, that it says eighth, that means it comes in a series of days. And this is an indicator to us, especially because this is, this is narrative. We're talking about uh, what different people did. When we have that number next to the word day, it indicates a series or sequence, and we're talking a 24-hour day. Now, here's another one. Numbers 11.32. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Okay, day appears twice in this sentence, but it has the same meaning. What does day mean? Exactly. We're talking about the daylight hours. How did you know that, Michelle? Exactly. Right near the word day, we have night. And so immediately we say, oh, this is not a 24-hour day. This is just the daylight portion of a day because we have night there as well. One more. Jeremiah 5.18. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make you 
a complete destruction. Okay, what does days mean here? And uh, is this span of time in the past, present, or the future? Well, it's actually not in the past. In those days, but the second part of the sentence says, I will not make you a complete destruction. So, future, right? So, the understanding of days here is some future period of time, or some future age. And we know that because of the plural use of the word days, and because of the future tense that appears in the latter part of the verse. So, this process is pretty simple, isn't it? You don't need a PhD to figure out what day means in these sentences. We're able to confidently determine its meaning, even though the word for day in Hebrew, and this is all Old Testament passages, can have multiple meanings. We just look at the words and phrases that appear with the word day, and we're able to figure out which meaning is meant. Yeah, Eric. I believe it is the word yam, but I actually didn't check each one of those sentences. But certainly, the, the principle is going to hold regardless. We're looking at, at, the, at the word day, which can be translated multiple ways in English. It's the same way with the Hebrew word yom, yom and uh, other, other Hebrew words that can have multiple meanings. But we're always going to do the same thing. We look at the words and phrases that appear next to it, so we're able to understand which meaning is meant. Now, let's go to Genesis 1. So open your Bibles to Genesis 1, if you haven't done so already. And let's look at the word day as it's used in the first chapter of the Bible. Verses that you'll be paying close attention to. I'm actually not going to read it right now. But verses that you'll pay close attention to are verse 5, verse 8, verse 13, verse 19, verse 23, and verse 31, the word day, and this is the Hebrew word yom, appears in each one of those, and it appears almost in the exact same way. What does day mean, and how do we know? Okay, so you've mentioned a very important clue. The sense is that it is a 24-hour day. And one of the clear indicators of that is evening and morning. Evening and morning, they make up a day. They make up a 24-hour day. And what's the other clue? Well, in the first day, yes, he divides it into day and night, light and darkness. And that, again, those are the two elements of a day, a 24-hour day. That's a good observation, Diane. And there's one other thing. Exactly. Just like we saw in one of the earlier passages, these days are numbered. And when we have a numbered day, that's a cue for us that we're talking about those 24-hour days. We're talking about ordinary days. It really is that simple. We look at the grammatical context of the word day in Genesis 1, and we see indicators of 24-hour days. And when we look at those other parts of the text, for, well, okay, maybe there's a a figurative indicator somewhere else here in the, in the first chapter. We don't see it. The plain sense of the text, the sense that the Hebrews 
those ancient Hebrews would have understood when they were going into the promised land is normal 24-hour days. But there's more to this. There are even more compelling reasons why we should take day as 24 hours in Genesis 1. And to help explain this, let's, we're going to actually watch a video clip from Answers in Genesis. So, Khalifa, you could, you could set that up. It's about six minutes. In this clip, we're going to see some people explain other reasons briefly. And they won't be able to explain it all the way, but briefly go over other reasons why yom has to mean 24 hours in chapter 1 of Genesis. Now, in your workbooks, page 17, there's some space to take notes on this. Pay attention to the different reasons that are expressed, because we're going to talk about them afterwards. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. But what does the Bible mean by day? Yom in Hebrew, 24 hours or something else? An era or millions of years perhaps? The, the, the key is the context around it. Yom is the uh, Hebrew word for day. And uh, it's very much like the English word in its flexibility. When I look at the, the context there of Genesis 1, uh, it looks just like a 24 hour day. God is setting up just like he does everywhere else in Genesis 1. He is setting up the world as we know it today. As a matter of fact, in the creation, God specifies each day at its conclusion that it was evening and morning, which consisted of a day. And so when I see phrases like evening and morning, the first day and so forth, God is simply structuring days just like we see them today. The word yom, or day, comes up often in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 20, for example, the text says that in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Let me read it to you right out of the book of Shemos, sometimes known as Exodus in the Torah. In English, it says, remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Six days shall you work and accomplish all your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath to Hashem your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your slave, your maidservant, your animal, and your convert within your gates. For in six days Hashem made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. There's really little controversy about what the word day means when you get outside of Genesis 1. When you look at a passage like that, it, it seems as if it's, it's almost certain that it's a six-day, a 24-hour day that's being talked about there. These words were actually written by the very finger of God on tablets of stone. You know, we say the Bible is the word of God. That's true, and God moved men by his spirit to write his words and so on. But Exodus 20 and the verse in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is and rested on the seventh day and blessed the Sabbath day and commanded us to keep it holy and so on. That was written by the very finger of God. If we have a figurative day in the creation account, then the fourth commandment does not make any sense. How did Jesus understand the creation account? Did he believe that the days of creation were long eras or 24-hour days? In the book of Mark, Jesus actually says he made them male and female from the beginning. That doesn't make any sense if the beginning was billions of years before he made the male and female. It only makes sense in the context of the creation week being a literal creation week of literal days. 
how we read Hebrew. I mean, it just reads very naturally as a literal six-day period. That's the way people have read this passage for centuries. Starting around the late 1700s, that's where you see people wondering about how long the day is. And again, that's going along with the Enlightenment age, the age of reason. We now need to, uh, reason is now the uh, chief authority, not God, not His Word. If the days of creation describe long eras of time before the appearance of humans, then death and suffering appear long before man sinned against God. When you look at the fossil record, it's full of death, uh, disease. For instance, uh, there's evidence of cancer in the dinosaur bones in the fossil record. There's evidence of a brain tumor in uh, a dinosaur skeleton. Uh, you see evidence of thorns, supposedly 430 million years old, uh, there in the, in, the, in the fossil record and so on. And if you're going to say all that existed before sin, we've got a major problem. First of all, at the end of the sixth day of creation, God said everything was very good. There are some serious theological implications if the earth is, let's say, millions, billions of years old, and that we have death before the fall, because the problem is going to be with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, for by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. I mean, that's the teaching of the Apostle. So it seems as if death is part of the curse. The Bible begins with Genesis, and it builds upon the teachings introduced there. Long ages would undermine the basic teachings of Christianity. When you understand that Genesis 1 to 11 is actually foundational to the whole of the rest of the Bible and all of our doctrines, you start to recognize if you can destroy Genesis 1 to 11, you actually undermine the foundation of every single biblical doctrine of theology. And that's really what's happened uh, in, in our world in this, in this modern era of history. To be honest with you, if the first 11 chapters are not true history, then Christianity collapses. Basically, if you undermine Genesis 1 through 11, you are undermining the entire Word of God. The issues of the age of the earth, the issues of millions of years and, and, and versus thousands of years, the, the issue in regard to the meaning of the uh, word day in Genesis and so on, it's all related to the fundamental issue of biblical authority. Do we take God at his word or do we take man's fallible ideas about the past and add them into the Bible and reinterpret the clear meaning of scripture? Right. Well, I can put the lights back on and switch back to the PowerPoint. So that was just a brief overview of some of these compelling reasons for us to take day as 24 hours in Genesis 1. But I want to review those different reasons in case you miss them and maybe expand on them just a little bit. First, you saw that they discussed what we discussed right before we saw the video, that the grammatical sense of the Hebrew is 24-hour day. The numbering of the days and the inclusion of the phrases evening and morning, they direct our thinking to the kinds of days that can be numbered and then include evenings and mornings, that is, 24-hour days. Furthermore, and they didn't mention this, but it's something I, I, I remember seeing in the Coming to Grips with Genesis book. Every time we see the word yom modified by a number in the Bible, and it's, it's not paired with night, yom is not paired with night, that day always is a 24-hour day. So there's no justification, grammatically, for taking that day to mean something else. 
If it has a number next to it and it doesn't have the word night next to it, it always means a 24-hour day. But it's not just the grammar. What else did you see in the video presented as a reason for 24-hour days? Uh, Rob. That's right. So the New Testament um, use of Genesis and when it talks about creation, that is affirming 24-hour days. Talk about more about that in a second. What else? Magda. Exactly. The, the creation tied to the Sabbath. It won't make sense without 24-hour days. That's another reason. There are two more. Why else? Yeah. That's right. We have a theological problem with death in long ages because we're trying to affirm the fossil record as being something that took place over billions or millions of years. There's a lot of death and corruption in it. More about that in a second. And one more reason. For 1,700 years church, in church history, people saw it as 24-hour days. Since the beginning of, um, of the church, that's the way people were interpreting it. All right, let's look at these a little bit more in detail, these five different reasons. So we talked about the grammar, but second, the Sabbath pattern. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, uses the fact that God created the earth in six days, rested on the seventh day, and then made the seventh day holy, as the reason that the Israelites must work six days and then rest on the Sabbath day. And if you've read through the Old Testament, you know the sanctification of the seventh day was serious. There was an Israelite who violated the Sabbath by gathering wood on it, and he was put to death. God was serious about the Israelites keeping his day holy, the Sabbath holy, the day which he had made holy in the creation week. But if the Sabbath commandment was based on a symbolic creation account, that doesn't really tell us how long or how God created the earth or how long it took, or if the original creation week took a length of time that was different than the one week that the Israelites were experiencing, then God's reasoning that he supplied himself in the Ten Commandments doesn't make sense. And we should note, God could have commanded the whole universe to come into being in one moment. So why did he take so long? Why did he elongate his creation process into six days of work and one day of rest? I mean, God is God. He doesn't get tired. He didn't actually need to rest. So why did he do it that way? Well, I don't know if I can answer all the reasons, but isn't one of the most abundantly clear reasons that he designed the creation process for the institution of the Sabbath in Israel? which would serve as a shadow pointing to the ultimate Sabbath rest that was found in his son? The creation process was very purposeful from God, and the Sabbath is intimately tied up with that purpose. To take the creation days as something other than 24 hours makes this Sabbath concept and the commandment from God not make sense. So there's the grammar, there's the Sabbath, but there's also the New Testament talk of creation. Now, the verse that they brought up in the video is a, is a really great one. There are a couple others like that from Jesus, but also many from the apostles. When they speak of creation, Jesus and the apostles, they affirm that literal, straightforward understanding of Genesis 1 and its day. Uh, Ken Ham mentioned Mark 10, 6. I'll give you that verse with a little bit of context around it. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees about divorce. And Mark 10, verses 5 to 8, Jesus says, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. 
talking about Moses. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now let's recall Ken Ham's explanation, or maybe you just see it after I've read the verse to you. How, does, how do Jesus' words affirm 24-hour days in Genesis 1? I mean, he didn't actually mention the word day. So why do I say his words support 24-hour days? Well, it, it goes to what he said in verse 6. It builds on verse 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Why is that phrase so significant for understanding the days in Genesis? That's a great explanation, Bill. Because the phrase beginning of creation is connected with the creation of male and female. That is Adam and Eve. I mean, this whole section is Jesus quoting from Genesis, um, the, the early part of Genesis. He's saying that man and women were there at the beginning of creation. But if there was millions of years or, or billions of years between the start of creation, the beginning of creation, and the creation of, of male and female, it just doesn't make sense. The only way that you can have male and female close to the beginning or in the beginning is with a short amount of time between day one and day six. And no, some, there's, a, there's an objection that comes from older advocates. They say, well, the, this doesn't mean the beginning of creation. It means the beginning of humanity's creation. That's what Jesus is talking about. But there's no reason for us to make that, make that leap. The phrase beginning of creation appears two other times in the New Testament, and in both cases it means the beginning of the world. And of the 20 times the phrase in the beginning appears in the New Testament, none of the other 19 times refer to the beginning of the human race. So there's no reason for us to supply that, that parenthetical. No concrete reason for us to take it other than what we would take it. The plain sense of Jesus here, the beginning of creation, the whole creation, not just man's creation. There are two other verses. I don't have them on the slide, but you can note them. Just for your own notification. From Jesus that do the same thing as this verse. Mark 13, 19, and Luke 11, 50 to 51. That's Mark 13, 19, and Luke 11, 50 to 51. Jesus is talking about something else, but he makes reference to creation in such a way that he affirms 24-hour days. We don't have time to look at those, but those statements and the statements from the apostles related to creation, again, are part of the argument for why we take Yom the way we do. And you can find out more about those arguments in chapters 11 and 12 in Coming to Grips with Genesis. So we have the grammar cues. We have the Sabbath. We have the New Testament scriptures and words from Jesus. But then there's the problem of death and corruption. Long ages within the creation week used to support evolution, and the current popular interpretations of the fossil record mean that death, disease, thorns, and carnivore killing were present in the good creation of God before the fall. Now, hopefully, you would agree with me that death, disease, thorns, and carnivore behavior do not qualify as good. And they, they contradict the newness of the curse 
or the curses that God gives in Genesis 3, where he says, now you're going to have thorns, now you're going to have toil, now you're going to have pain. So we have that contradiction. But as they brought up in the video, it goes against explicit statements in the New Testament, like Romans 5.12, which says, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death entered the world, entered the world is still part of that same understanding, through sin. It couldn't have entered the world before that. And you know, a similar verse from Romans 8, 20 to 21, which talks about creation, says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation is enslaved to corruption. That's not good. It wasn't like that at the beginning. But long ages would require that. Non-24-hour days would, uh, in Genesis 1 would require that. So it's a contradiction of New Testament text. I saw your hand, Ron. Good question. What would you say to someone who says that Romans 5.12 is talking about spiritual death and not physical death? Right, strictly spiritual death. I had to think about the full answer to that, but my first thought is that that interpretation is just not justified in Romans 5. That there's no reason for us to, to think that, that, that that's only spiritual death. Certainly, the in, in Genesis chapter 1, where it talks about death, and when we see people dying, it's uh, physical death included. So, again, I have to think about more of an answer to that, but, yeah, go ahead, Mike. That's a really good point, Mike, and I don't know why I didn't think of that. I mean, that's, I'm really glad you brought it up. But, I mean, it's impossible to separate the two, right? Spiritual death always accompanies physical death. There's no way that you can just be spiritually, or, yeah, just have spiritual death. We, we inherit both of those things from Adam. So, yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Mike. The, as you said, the burden of proof would be on the person who wants to take spiritual death by itself, prove that, 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 that physical death is not included. Uh, Greg, I see your hand. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Greg. The verse that comes after Romans 5.12, Romans 5.14, says that death reigned from Adam until Moses. And we don't really uh, get much in the Bible about the spiritual, uh, the spiritual state of all the different people between them, but we can see that they all died physically. And I think that's what, that's what, um, that's what Greg's talking about. We certainly see that it's physical death reigning 
over those people between Adam and Moses. So anyways, good question, Robin, and good follow-up comments and questions. So anyways, this, this problem of death and disease in non-24-hour days is quite apparent. It's a theological problem with the script, or it, it's a contradiction of the scriptures, and it assumes not good elements were part of God's very good creation before the fall. So we have those four reasons, and then finally one more, church history. You know we did the church history of Sunday school, so this reason has a little special place in my heart, but I can't even say that much about it because we don't have that much time. But before the popularization of geological uniformitarianism, now I've mentioned that term a number of times in this course. If you don't know what that means, it's just the assumption that the processes of geological change that we see today are the same processes that have accomplished all geological change. There was no massive catastrophe in the geological record, and if there were, they were insignificant enough that they don't show up in evidence today. We assume that everything in the past is just like it is today. That concept, geological uniformitarianism, became extremely popular in the late 1700s, part of the Enlightenment period. And virtually, but before that, virtually every Christian theologian took the days of Genesis 1 as 24-hour days. There were a few exceptions, but virtually every theologian took it that way. Now, understand... I don't want you to get the wrong impression. The Age of Enlightenment was not the first time that the church encountered naturalistic explanations of the universe's origin. In fact, there's a great quotation from Basil of Caesarea in the fourth century, which I can't read to you, but it's in the Coming to Grips with Genesis, in which he laments the folly of those who distrust the Genesis account and suppose that the universe came about merely by the chance interaction of material elements. This is in the fourth century. They say the universe came about by chance. There was no designer involved. It was just physical things combining and separating from one another. And he said, no, the Bible tells you how it really happened. Also, the early Christians lived in a time in which ancient cultures asserted histories that went back tens of thousands of years, even hundreds of thousands of years. No one asserted millions of years. They weren't, they weren't that bold. But they would say hundreds of thousands of years or tens of thousands of years. But the Christians who encountered such claims in these ancient documents confidently dismissed them because they say the Bible's history doesn't fit that. The Bible's history describes a universe that's less than 6,000 years old. Virtually every Christian theologian said that up until the 1700s. It was only during the Enlightenment that many Christians backpedaled on creation, on miracles, on the incarnation, and on other aspects of the Bible that just didn't seem reasonable according to the new trends in man's thinking. So, the witness of church history, again, affirms this idea, or affirms the interpretation of 24-hour days in Genesis. And you can find more about the different view, or the different expressions of this truth in church history and how it changed in the 1700s, also in coming to grips with Genesis in the first three chapters. Really valuable section there. So, oh yeah, Francisco.
that's a good point, Francisco. Let me just uh, repeat that in brief. The idea that when Jesus did miracles, he's taking those parts of the, the body that have become sick or become hurt. Essentially, they're, they're out of order. They've, they've embraced a kind of chaos, and he brings them back into order, which is exactly what the creator does. We don't have the evolutionary idea of just um, lots of disorder, lots of chaos, and somehow creating life. Now, we have the opposite presented in the Bible. Order is there. Sin brings disorder. Sin brings the chaos. So these are just five reasons. There are, there's more to this, of course, even within these, these arguments that I presented to you. But we can confidently affirm that the days of Genesis 1 are 24 hours. It's the, it's the, cue, or it's the way that the grammar points us. It's, the, uh, it's connected with the Sabbath pattern. It's affirmed by what we see in the New Testament. It deals with the problem of corruption. And it's what church history has said for 1,700 years. And before we move on, I do want to respond to four objections to what I presented. Perhaps you've heard this before, and maybe you've been thinking these things, but there are four objections to 24-hour days that are based off of different verses in the Bible. I'm going to respond to them. First, Genesis 1 can't be talking about 24-hour days because the sun was not created until day 4. If there's no sun, there can't be day and there can't be night. Well, I'd say the answer to this objection is actually fairly simple. God made a 24-hour day-night cycle without the sun. That's just it. I mean, that's, that's exactly what it says in Genesis 1 on, day one, uh, on day 1. There's day and night, but there's no sun. And this is not a novel answer, because this is the same thing that the early church fathers said when people, when people brought this up. They say, well, what, what God did on day one is that he caused a light to shine on the earth supernaturally. This light must have been a directional light because there was also darkness. With this supernatural source of light, God caused evening and morning to transpire on this yet unfinished but apparently rotating earth. God can do that, right? I mean, the whole thing is supernatural. There's no reason that God couldn't do this, and the straightforward sense of Genesis 1 assumes that this is what he did. So even though there was no sun on day one, there was day and night, 24-hour days. I like how one church father put it. He actually said this was God establishing what a day is. That it's day, or it, that, that it's um, evening and morning, the day and the night portions. So that's one objection. Another one. Genesis 2.4 shows us that the days of Genesis are not necessarily literal. But what does Genesis 2.4 say? Turn over there briefly. It's, of course, right next to Genesis 1. Now let's read the verse in context. This is verses 1 to 4 in Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Okay, so notice day in verse 4, is, it just looks like one day. But what do you notice about verses 1 to 3 and their use of the word day? Yeah, 
Exactly. We still have what we saw in Genesis 1, which is numbered days. This talks about the seventh day in which creation was finished. How then, Moses, within the space of one verse, did you contradict yourself on these creation days? The whole chapter, the whole first chapter, and the beginning of the second chapter, you're talking about seven days, and now you say only one day. Is Moses really so inept? No, of course not. And neither is the Spirit of God. Notice that the word day in verse 4 does not have any modifier on it, like we've seen through the rest, or in the beginning of Genesis 1. There's no description of morning and evening. There's no number next to it. Therefore, remember, day can mean something other than a 24-hour day, depending on its context. And when we don't have those cues that indicate a 24-hour day, we must be aware it can mean something else. When we look at the context of verses 1 to 3 and Genesis chapter 1, and we come to, and, and we have to define what day means in Genesis 2, 4, what must it mean? Right, so what Michelle expressed, either we're talking about the first day of creation of the seven days, or we're talking about a summary of the seven days of creation. That In the word day, in, in verse 4, we're talking about that summary. I would lean towards the second, because the whole statement comes at the end of the creation account and is very much like a summary. The word day here refers to the seven days. Really, in the day, just has the sense of when here, when God created the heavens and the earth. And we actually see that sense of the phrase in the day, or bayom, other parts in the Bible. And certainly this should, be, this should be clear from the context. He's just been talking about seven days for a whole chapter. With that understanding already in place, when he mentions day again, his audience would not be saying, wait, did he mean one day or seven days? No, they say, oh, well, he's talking about the seven days that he's been talking about the whole time. In verse 4, that could have been what he chose to do? Or That's a good question, so let me repeat it. Wouldn't Moses have used days plural if he meant the seven days of creation? Certainly he could have chosen to do it that way, but it apparently was appropriate in ancient Hebrew to just say in the day. It was just like saying when. So he didn't, he didn't feel compelled to say days. Now, So again, uh, just to affirm what Mike said, reputable um, translations resource will say that in the day or bayom just means when, or it can mean when. And uh, it's like an idiom. And just as you were saying, Michelle, we have to remember that yom can be used figuratively. You have to look for the cues. And so what we're seeing here is that it doesn't mean that ordinary day in verse 4. It's just referring to the, the period of creation um, over the seven days. So two more objections I want to talk about. 
Next, what about 2 Peter 3.8, which reads, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Okay, fair question. Let's, look, let's remember the context of the verse in 2 Peter. Verse 9 is actually the, the next verse that comes after it. It's helpful for us understanding what Peter was getting at in verse 8. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Remember, in 2 Peter, Peter's audience is persecuted believers, and they were wondering about the apparent slowness of God to keep his promise to come back to the earth. And there were godless mockers, which Peter talks about in the verses preceding verse 8, who are saying that God's never going to come. And nothing is going to change on the earth. Everything is going to proceed just as it has always proceeded. But Peter reminds the believers, based on the creation, based on, on the flood, that God isn't slow at all. In fact, and more explicitly in verse 8, God's sense of time is totally different from ours. It can't even be fully described. Notice that verse 8 not only says that a day is like a thousand years for God, but also that a thousand years are like a day. How can those both be true? How can time both be really slow for God and really fast? We can't fully understand God's timing. He is outside time. He's the eternally preexistent God and the eternally existent God. We can't fully comprehend God's time, but we can know that God is patient and he does everything exactly at the right time. Notice that this verse cannot be a formula for understanding days from God's perspective. If it were, we'd be hopelessly lost because we get two contradictory formulas. Is a God day 1,000 earth years or is it 1,000th of an earth day? Not to mention Psalm 90 verse 4 says that a thousand years are like a watch in the night for the Lord, which is only three hours. So there, there's another formula that would complicate things. It's fruitless for us to try to figure out what exactly is a God day like, because God doesn't experience days like at all like we do. God is outside time. Furthermore, it would be totally useless for any part of the Bible to talk to us in terms of God days. There really is no such thing, and if there were, we couldn't understand what was meant by it. In fact, to talk in terms of God days at all would be to go against the pattern of God's revelation. And I mean it in this sense. When God gives measurements in the Bible, he always speaks in terms of human measurement. When he gives Noah the measurement of the ark for building it, it's in cubits, which Noah readily understood. Or when he gives the Apostle John the measurement of the New Jerusalem, it's in stadia, which was something that John readily understood. Those are human measurements. Similarly, when he gives measurements of time, it is in human terms. Days, weeks, months, years. So for these reasons, there's no reason for us to change our understanding of the Genesis, base, Genesis days based on this statement in 2 Peter 3.8. Yes, Duane. Exactly. Right. 
that, that's another problem with the text. If they do, if anyone were, to repeat what you said, Dwayne, if anyone were to use this as a formula, even though I, I've just explained, you're not justified in doing so, it would only mean the creation days were 7,000 years, which is not enough for the evolutionary time scale. One final objection. Hebrews 4 shows us that the seventh day of creation, the day of God's rest, never ended. Therefore, the days of creation are figurative and not 24 hours. Just to remind you, Hebrews 4, 4 says, and he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and then Hebrews 4, 5, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Hebrews 4, 9 says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So there's a connection between the seventh day and the Sabbath rest yet for the people of God. And connected with this argument is the observation of Genesis 1 that the seventh day is the only one that does not have the phrase, there is evening and morning the seventh day. There's no mention of evening and morning the seventh day. So based on that and based off of Hebrews 4, people say, well, it's an eternal day. It never ended. It's a figurative day. So the rest of the days are figurative. Well, first of all, let me say, it's a non sequitur to say that the absence of evening and morning means that the seventh day never ended. The absence of the phrase, at most, suggests that there was something different about the seventh day. But we're told explicitly in the text what was different about the seventh day. It's the day in which God rested from his work. Likely the phrase evening and morning were part of a transition statement between each day of creation. So it was not necessary to use that phrase again on the last day because creation was finished. Second of all, the Sabbath rest described in Hebrews 4 is not the same as the Sabbath day mentioned in Genesis 1. The rest that God experienced on the first Sabbath, that satisfaction and that celebration of his accomplished work, it lasts eternally. But that does not mean that the Sabbath day itself lasts eternally. No, indeed, there have been many Sabbath days since the first Sabbath, and many Israelites experienced those Sabbath days without experiencing the rest of the true Sabbath. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is arguing in Hebrews 4. The people of Israel, even though they made it into the Promised Land, they didn't experience the true Sabbath rest of God because the people had not done what God did that first Sabbath, rested from their work. In Christ, however, Jew and Gentile believers do exactly as God did at creation. They rest from work and satisfy themselves in the accomplished work of God. This is what it means to enter God's Sabbath rest. Not God's Sabbath day. We don't enter his Sabbath day. We enter his Sabbath rest. And that rest is an eternal rest. So there are two problems with trying to use Hebrews 4 to talk about an eternal seventh day. First of all, the Seventh day and the Sabbath rest are not the same. And second of all, if they were, it would mean that the seventh day is eternal, which is going to give, a, give us lots of problems because then the other days are eternal. You can't just say, oh, they're figurative. No, if the seventh day is eternal, then since it's a day just like all the other days, then they're eternal too. And that's going to create a whole bunch of other problems. So anyways, these are some objections that I've responded to. There may be more. If you have more questions about that, come talk to me afterwards or see the resources that I mentioned earlier. So we've looked at what does a day mean. We've also looked at we've also looked at some objections to the understanding of a 24-hour day. On the last part of our class, I want us to examine the first four days a little bit more closely. Well, what exactly happened on those first 24-hour days? For the sake of time, we're not going to read those verses again in Genesis chapter 1, but let's 
scan the text, observe the text, and describe what happened on each day. So we'll start with day one. Oh, by the way, you got some worksheets today. Hopefully you picked up the worksheet, The Days of Creation. And you want to write down on those worksheets what we observe now. What happened on day one, day two, day three, day four. And you'll need this worksheet next week, so don't forget it. Don't lose it. So go ahead and look at the first few verses of chapter one. What happens on day one? What's something that happens? Just go ahead and call it out, because we're running out of time. Lights created. Anything else? That's right. Earth is created. The empty heavens are created. Anything else? Uh, not yet. Plants will come later. I think you could argue that time was created. Yeah, George? The water was created. And we can also say day and night were created. So earth, water, the empty cosmos. And remember, I'm, I'm arguing that based off of, the, of a descriptive interpretation of Genesis 1-1 rather than a summary. Light and day and night were created. That's day one. What about day two? What happens on day two? The sky is created. We have that expanse. The waters are divided from the waters. Water is divided by an expanse, and the sky is created. What about day three? We have the plants created. What else? Say that again. Yeah, the trees, part of the plants. Water separates from land, and what appears? Dry land. I think we, we mentioned them all. The waters are gathered into seas, the dry land appears, and all plant kinds are created. And then day four, what happens on day four? That's right. The sun, moon, and stars were created, or we could say the, all the lights of heaven were created. Uh, just a, a few other observations on these different days. On day three, to be clear, was the land created on day three? If we pay close attention to the text, it says the land appeared. And the word translated appeared comes from a Hebrew verb having to do with sight or with looking. So this is not a verb of creation. This is a verb of appearance. So the dry land appeared as the water was gathered into seas. Also, regarding the plants, what phrase appears multiple times in relation to the plants and their seeds? To their kind, or of their kind, or after their kind. Very good. Uh, one other thing about day four. When the lights are created, they are created, we're told explicitly, for two purposes. What are those purposes? Yeah, they're for signs. They're for they're time indicators. And they also... Yeah, they rule the day and night. And they, they give light. They shine light on the earth. So we get some purposes right there. Um, told to us. All right, a few more interpretive questions now. And I have to go through these quickly. But what exactly is the separation of waters described on day two? What is this expanse? Some have proposed, let me just first say, it's not an easy question to answer. Some have proposed that day two depicts the creation of a canopy of water that once surrounded the earth, but then fell during the flood. 
But there's some problems with this idea, and one of them is verse 14 says that the lights of day four were placed in the expanse between the waters and the waters. That's, at least that's the idea that would be implied. The sun, moon, and stars were somehow beneath the canopy. That's just not physically possible. And there's some other issues with that interpretation. Others suggest that the division of water on day two describes a wall of water at the edge of the universe. That is, that our universe exists in a giant bubble. Maybe. One thing is clear enough, though, and that is that our planet's heaven, the sky, the atmosphere began to exist on day two. So we can at least note that. Additionally, you may be wondering when the planets were created. Just understand that the word translated stars in verse 16 can also include the planets and those other celestial objects. Finally, the plants. Let's return to the plants on day three. What does the phrase, after their kind, tell us about these plants? Say that, say that again, Roy. Exactly. Yeah, so they are going to reproduce as their own kind, within their kind. What were you going to say, Craig? Oh, I thought you, you, thought you were going to say something. And they can be classified according to kinds. There are different kinds of plants. We get three main categories there, grasses, herbs, and trees. All of these reproduce after their own kinds. And this is something we can observe today. We can scientifically classify distinct kinds of plants according to their similar characteristics, according to their fertility with one another. I mean, think about peppers. All the peppers that you've seen are eaten. Many different colors, some different shapes, different flavors, that they're all peppers, part of the pepper kind. Or if you think about wheat, barley, oats, and rye, they're all the same kind. What kind? They're grains, right? They're all the same kind of plant. Now, if you plant some pepper seeds, will you get something other than a pepper plant? No, if you do, you'll be like, whoa, that wasn't a pepper seed because you recognize this idea of kinds. So depending on how you breed plants, you might see new variations within that kind, but you don't see a plant become a new kind. Your pepper seed doesn't become a pumpkin plant. This is what's described to us here in verses 11 to 13 in Genesis 1. On day three, God created all the original kinds of each plant. There was the pepper kind, the grain kind, the onion kind, the berry kind, the bean kind, etc., etc. And these kinds did not yet have their great variation that we see today. But within these first plants, these first kinds, were all the genes that would produce the great variety that we see within the kinds today. Notice that this is a contradiction of evolutionary theory. And from an evolutionary perspective, there were a few primordial plants, progenitor plants, and they changed kinds. They became other kinds of plants. And this is often depicted to us in something called the tree of life. You see a, see a picture of that there. So from one kind or from a few kinds, um, the, the rest of the kinds appeared. In contrast, what we see in Genesis, instead of a tree of life, is something more like an orchard of life, which you see underneath there. All those kinds were there at the beginning, but over time, we see variation within the kind. But things, these plants, they don't change kinds. I just wanted to present this idea of kinds to you 
now. We'll hear more about it next week in our next Sunday School class. All right, so that's pretty much it for today. Uh, I won't go over the application questions in your book since I've answered many of those questions as part of the Sunday School lesson today. Don't forget the memory verse. That's Exodus 20, verse 11, uh, a verse that we've made a number of references to today. And just a, a couple announcements. Next, week's, next week, I'm actually not going to be here. Brother Brian, Brother Brian Gill is going to be teaching the class. And he'll be talking about creation days five to six. What did God do specifically on those days? What does it, the different animal kinds mean? And how is man unique in God's creation? He'll be talking to you about those things. Don't forget your worksheets. You need them for next week. Hang on to them. Bring them back. Also, if you haven't picked up your family devotional and you ordered one, please see me. I see your hand. Let me uh, actually talk to you afterwards because we're, we're out of time. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, I thank you so much for, for being our creator. I thank you for being so clear in your word. I pray, God, that we would, we would stand on the authority of your scriptures and that we would use it, Lord, as part of the, as the whole gospel presentation. They would see that, they are, that we all are, God, uh, bound to you as creator. You deserve glory. You deserve worship. You deserve obedience. So God, I pray that you'd make us bold with this truth, bold with the gospel. Bless the rest of this uh, service today. In Jesus' name, amen.